The Vietnam War is one of those things in history that I think we all have a general idea about. But even having family members who served, I still had a lot of misconceptions coming into this expert interview. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Robin Bartlett. Robin was a lieutenant in the 1st Cav and completed over 50 helicopter-based assaults. He shares not only his extreme experiences in combat, but also the changes in life going to Vietnam and coming back from it to a world that wasn't necessarily happy to see the troops return. He's got an excellent book out now if any of you are interested in learning more. You might also notice during this interview my extra gravelly voice. I was still very sick when we recorded. Let's welcome these soldiers home. Welcome to the show, Robin Bartlett. Thank you. Good to be here, Colin. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit for the audience? Sure. I am a three-generation military person. My grandfather went to West Point. My father went to West Point. My brother went to West Point. And I turned down an appointment to West Point because I decided that after 13 elementary and middle schools and four high schools, I had had enough of the military. But um, as I started college, Southern California, I went to Claremont McKenna College as I started there, it was uh, the building, the buildup of the Vietnam War, and um, I did not wish to be drafted. There was a tradition of officers in my family, so I knew I pretty much had to serve my obligation as an officer, and so I went into the ROTC program, and it was um, second nature for me. Um, I mean, we answered the telephone at home, Colonel Bartlett's quarters, may I help you, sir? That's how we answered the phone at home. And uh, so there's a, a tremendous military tradition. We took service to our country very seriously. I mean, those words meant something to us. So we were in, that's what my father's profession was, service to our country. And um, I did not wish to be drafted. And I did wish to serve my obligation as an officer. So that's how I kind of got into, into this uh, Vietnam situation. And it was the height and the buildup of the war. Uh, and I knew where, once I went, was commissioned as an officer and graduated on the same day, I knew that's where I was going eventually. And it doesn't seem like a uncommon story, you know, when talking to people to hear like, well, I joined because I didn't want to get drafted. Right. It was a time when uh, the draft was uh, a, a really large issue. We needed a lot of troops uh, because uh, Kennedy and Johnson both escalated the war dramatically during that period of time. And uh, Westmoreland, who was the uh, commanding general in Vietnam, uh, decided that we needed a lot of American troops to completely uh, eliminate the North Vietnamese threat. So how old were you when you joined ROTC? So I graduated um from college on may the 6th 
June the 6th, 1967. I was commissioned on the same day as a second lieutenant. I was 21 years old. And after about a year of uh, training and uh, service in the 82nd Airborne Division, that's where I um, did most of my uh, after after basic training, uh, officer basic training and airborne training and ranger training, uh, I served with the 82nd Airborne Division in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is now called, they renamed all the uh, military bases. That's now called Fort Liberty and uh, was with the 82nd Airborne Division. I went to Vietnam at the, at the age of 22, May the 9th, 1968 was when I flew from Travis Air Force Base to Benoit, Vietnam. And it seems like, you know, you have a lot of history, like you said, quite a long history in your family of, you know, voluntary military service officers. Was there a noticeable difference in that time before you, you went overseas? Could you tell like the difference between someone who was voluntarily there versus someone who had been drafted? Well, of course, the all of the off, I was in an officer community. And so almost all of us uh, were either ROTC or West Pointers. There were a few OCS uh, officers, officer candidate school. So all of us were volunteers. Um, the infantry and infantry officers were all volunteers. No, no one would, as an officer, would be drafted. You, if you were drafted, you went in as an enlisted man. And then if you were bright enough, you could apply for officer candidate school. So I would say that uh, I, I'm, I'm just guessing at these percentages, but about 60 percent of the infantry officers I came in contact with, maybe that's high. Forty percent were West Pointers and 10 um, percent were OCS and the rest were ROTC. So what were your first days like? You know, like obviously you had a lot of experience you know, here at home, moving around, all those things. What was the first day stepping into Vietnam like? So um, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of veterans. And um, when we got off the airplane, in, and it was a commercial flight with uh, female um, flight attendants. And I think that was the last time I saw an American woman for the entire year I was in Vietnam because even I got wounded and even uh, on the hospital ship, there were no females. I don't think I saw what we called them round eyes. I don't think I saw a female for the entire year I was in Vietnam. Uh, although I know they were there. I just never saw them. The two things that veterans talk about when arriving, well, three things really, they when arriving in Vietnam is number one, the heat, uh, and the, the flight attendants ask us to pull down the shades to try and keep uh, the heat out. Number two was the smell when we got off the flight, off the plane, just this horrendous uh, odor. And third was the fact that as we got off, uh, there were troops that were leaving Vietnam getting on. And of course, they harassed us and yelled at us. And uh, But those are the three memories I recall um getting off that plane and waiting for buses to come and take us to the replacement depot and that seems like you know a couple of things that would definitely shock the system oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> it was uh it was a hell of a shock and and almost most of my flight were second lieutenants 
I would say 90% of them were second lieutenants. And then there were some field grade officers who were going back for second tours and maybe a few captains, but mostly majors and lieutenant colonels who were going back for second tours and they stayed by themselves. So we were, for the most part, we were all butter bars as they called us. Gotcha. So, you know, you have those first, that first experience, obviously stepping off the plane. Do they start you out like trying to build a day in day out routine or is it just like, you know, everything will change every day from now on. And that is how it is. So I was with the 82nd Airborne Division in the United States, and they wanted to try to keep airborne officers in airborne units in Vietnam. So I actually had orders transferring me to the 101st Airborne Division uh, in Vietnam. However, when I arrived, it was just after the Tet Offensive of 1968. And uh, that was a major turning point in the Vietnam War, both in the United States and in Vietnam. The, the entire political environment in the United States and public opinion did a 180 degree turn after Vietnam. And in Vietnam, the casualties that occurred during that period of time, even though we we uh, killed enemy forces 10 to 1, we lost about we lost more people during that Tet Offensive, more Americans than at any other period of time and then at any other year, 1968. Um, so, so it was a major turning point in Vietnam as well. And, and because of all the officer casualties, uh, all orders were canceled. So, uh, when I arrived in the replacement depot, they just said, stand by, we'll, we'll let you know where you're going. And after three days of intense heat, uh, just walking around in shorts and, and, uh, reading paperback books, taking as many showers as you could possibly take just to cool off. Uh, I got orders for the hundred for the first cab division, and that turned out to be, uh, in many respects, a, a very good thing, because um, we had more helicopters in that division than they had in all of Vietnam, and that division was responsible for the air mobile concept, and and the air mobile concept very simply is uh, was that uh, still is to this day you bring fresh troops to the battle by helicopter as opposed to having them walk to the battle or run to the battle. Um, so we, we went everywhere by helicopter, which allowed us to carry less on our backs and more water, more ammunition, uh, and get res get frequently resupplied every day by helicopter, as long as, as they could uh, land, come into the landing zone where we were, or even if they couldn't, they could hover overhead and, and kick out stuff to us. So um, that was the good part. The bad part or the, you know, the, the dangerous part was that we would make helicopter combat assaults called Charlie Alphas, CA, helicopter combat assaults. And I made more than 50 helicopter combat assaults with my unit and uh, sometimes twice a day. Um, was not unusual to be walking through the boonies. We, we called it humping, humping the boonies and get a radio call saying, find a, find an LZ birds are inbound to pick you up in 20 minutes. Because the concept was if we could spot an enemy unit, if we could spot an enemy force, we would assault a, a, a platoon and then a company on right into that unit and engage the unit. 
and then bring these incredible resources that the first cav had to bear uh, on mm-hmm. the enemy force, trap them, block them, and you know completely um, uh, disseminate them. That was the concept, the air mobile concept. So um, after three days, I was assigned to the first cav division and worked my way up, up first. Uh, the, the replacement depot was in three core and the division rear was in two cores in, in on K. So first flight was to on K and that's where we drew weapons and, and jungle fatigues. And, uh, uh, I was carrying so much stuff. I, I was just loaded down unbelievable amount of stuff, um, both military and personal. I took way too much stuff. Uh, and, and I thought I was taking the absolute minimum. When I came back, everything fit in a little tiny bag. That was it. And uh, was then on K for about three or four days and then moved to the division forward, uh, which was in Camp Evans in i And i is right along the demilitarized zone uh, between North and South Vietnam, uh, Gulf of Tonkin on the east, a Laotian border on the west. And that was our AO area of operation from the Gulf of Tonkin to the Laotian border. And most of my time was spent uh, right around the Laotian border because that was uh, where the North Vietnamese soldiers were attempting to infiltrate through the Ho Chi Minh, Cha- Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, and that that terrain is mostly mountainous, three canopy jungle. And, and that's we spent some time out toward what we called the beach near the Gulf of Tonkin, but most of the time was in that mountainous terrain near the Laotian border. Well, and I think most people that have seen, you know, a a Vietnam movie or a documentary or something are pretty familiar with like the image of a very, very thick jungle. Is that part of the reason that we started adopting this, you know, helicoptering in and around policy was just because it was otherwise so hard to move people? That was not one of the rationales. I mean, the, the whole idea behind this air mobile concept of the first cab division was to move troops by helicopter. And we 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 moved. I mean, it, it was so densely um, and we had we're talking about three canopy jungle. That means three layers of growth over your head. And the the enemy preferred that terrain because it gave them cover from, um, you know, any kind of overflights that might uh, might see them they always moved at night and they moved in small groups and they moved in small groups and then ultimately when they felt they could attack an a, a unit whether it was be um an arvin unit army of the south of vietnam that was the arvin south vietnamese army or an american army they would mass and uh mass mean get together and uh, attack uh, when they felt they had a superior opportunity, they would always, almost always attack at night because they knew if it was during the day, we could bring superior forces uh, to bear, which would be artillery and helicopter gunships and jets and napalm and gas and uh, even even uh, uh, battleships. Uh, on occasion, we would direct fire from battleships if we were close enough to the Gulf of Tonkin. That's a lot of firepower. Yeah. That certainly is a lot of firepower. Like just thinking about all the things that could shoot at you. Yep. But it seems like, you know, if you have the North Vietnamese troops running in these smaller groups, it's much more likely 
that you're going to like encounter them because they're kind of scattered everywhere instead of moving in like chunks of people. Is that that's the case? correct? And and the way we encountered them was with night ambushes. Uh, every every American company had at least three platoons. Uh, typical strength of a company was about uh, between eighty and one hundred and twenty men, depending upon people on R and R, casualties, um, various things, people getting sick, etc. So, uh, I would say the average was around uh, ninety men. And that uh, allowed you to have three line platoons and a mortar platoon. A mortar platoon only carried one tube, you know, one tube and eight rounds. That was about it. So uh, except at night, that's when they brought in additional ammunition. Uh, But every platoon would send out an ambush every night. So I would take an ambush one night and then my platoon sergeant would take an ambush the next night. We alternated between the two. And that would be a reinforced squad. And we would we would find a trail network or find a a likely location where enemy soldiers would be moving. And we would set up uh, to ambush that unit and uh, take them out. When you talk about the adrenaline of a life or death situation, like that is something that usually only happens to a person, you know, once or twice in their life, but definitely not in this case. Like that amount of adrenaline has to be something to experience like really otherworldly compared to normal life. No question about it. It's pretty hairy to be in a firefight. And um, when I came into my unit, uh, I was actually promoted to first lieutenant. I went in to the, um, I met the, the S1, that's the personnel officer. And I told him that my secondary specialty was as the S1. And he said, well, that's good because you'll be coming out of the field. An officer only served uh, six to seven months in the field. And then he said, you'll be coming out of the field about the same time I'll be going back to the world. That's what we call the United States, the world. And um, so if you survive your tour, we'll make you the S-1. And so I went into the battalion commander's office that night, having just been promoted to first lieutenant. With three other officers, we went in alphabetically. So I went in first, and I listened to the battalion commander, who was literally dead on his feet. I think he'd been up straight for two days. I don't remember a thing he said. And at the end of his two-minute speech, he asked the S1 where we needed these officers. And he said, well, we need one in A, two in B, and one in C. So I went to A, and the next two officers went to B, and the third office, fourth officer went to C. I was the only one to survive that tour. The other three officers were either killed or wounded. And I I think I survived my tour for three reasons. The first reason is I tried very, very hard not to do stupid stuff. Now, that may sound funny, but I was 22 years old. I'd had three courses of training. I had uh, airborne school, which didn't do much for me in Vietnam except make me in have had me in really good physical condition. Infantry officer basic course, which was 50% field and 50% classroom, and ranger school. And ranger school was the best insurance policy any officer could have for surviving Vietnam because that taught you it taught you so much about what you needed to do to survive. The second thing I did was that I sat down with my platoon sergeant 
and my squad leaders. And I said, listen, you guys have had more time in the field than I. I'm still the leader. But if you see me doing something wrong, I want you to tell me. And I won't always take your advice, but I want you to feel confident that you can always speak to me and tell me if you think I'm doing something wrong. And then the third thing I did was I listened to my point man. We we typically would move through the jungle single file. Point man is out 50 meters in front, has a cover man about five meters behind him. And this was the guy who was the most vul- in the most vulnerable position. And and if that man and we rotated that position every day, sometimes two or three times a day, if it was in in deep jungle, if you had to cut your way with the machete. But if he came back or if he called me forward and said, I I really just have this bad feeling. I don't hear any birds. I don't hear any monkeys chirping. Um, I just have a bad feeling. I would shoot artillery out in front of us. That was called reconnaissance by fire. And I shot so much artillery that the artillery battery that supported us got to know my call sign, (laughs) which was Foggy Day 1-6, one being the first platoon leader. Foggy Day is is the A company. Uh, One is the first platoon, and six is the leader. And and I shot so much artillery that they, they ultimately put a budget on me of 25 rounds. But that wasn't enough. You know, then then as we walked through that area, we know that there had been a substantial artillery barrage in front of us. And um, that that made us feel a lot more confident. But um, kind of going, I know that's a long answer to your question, but essentially, if you were in a firefight, the first thing you did, of course, was to hit the ground and, and pray. And the bullets are flying overhead. But as the leader, I mean, you could, I could literally feel eyes turn toward me saying, give us direction, give us an order, tell us what to do. And you, you had to reach down inside and, and give orders. And you had to tell the men where you wanted them to move and where you wanted to be positioned. And sometimes that put men into harm's way. Uh, but you had to do that as the leader of the unit. If you did not do it, then it was left to individual decision. And and that meant catastrophe. So John Wayne said it best. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. And and that's literally what the leader had to do. Right or wrong, make a decision and follow through. And, you know, beyond the like the immediate rush that kind of comes like oh we're entering combat right like hit the deck start fire whatever it is you know some of these these encounters i guess throughout history have lasted very long periods of time was that an issue in the vietnam conflict or did everything kind of happen in short bursts most of the ambushes either when they ambushed us or we ambushed them and more often than not we ambushed them uh, were short bursts. They they were you know encounters with a small squad with three or four men, um, one man, whatever. And we were in a free fire zone up by the Laotian border, so there were no friendlies. And if you met someone, you killed them. End of story. You you didn't ask questions. You just fired. And and often many of these ambushes were of soldiers who were carrying their weapons on their shoulders. And we never carried our weapons on our shoulders. We always carried our weapons in our hands. 
and the point man carried his weapon on full automatic with the safety off. Uh, so, so it was not unusual. But uh, the the skirmishes, if you will, uh, were small units. On a couple of occasions, one occasion in particular, we did run into a, an ambush by uh, a fairly substantial uh, enemy force, probably regimental size. And then, you know, that was back to the air mobile concept that I was talking about before. You bring in the rest of the company, you bring in the rest of the troops, and you bring in all the resources that you possibly can. You try to block the enemy from escaping, which was very difficult, often very difficult, but you attack. And uh, you attack with overwhelming superior forces to to destroy and annihilate the enemy force. And we had kind of talked you know, a little bit about this, as you had talked about, you know, some of the other officers that came in at the same time as you, but Vietnam has become pretty well known for a high casualty rate. And I don't want to be in any way indelicate about this, but did you have that same experience, you know, very close inside of your units? Sure. I mean, when you think about it, I always walked fourth in line. So I'm point man, cover man, and then I would have uh, a uh, usually my machine gunner and uh, M60 Grenadier walk in front of me. That was my firepower, most firepower. Uh, but I was the guy with the map in his thigh pocket. I was the guy with the compass trying to figure out where he was, pulling the map out of my pocket, looking at the map. I was the guy with the radio operator standing behind me within arms length to to if i needed to talk on the radio uh that was like putting a great big target on your back if there were snipers uh there was no way to avoid that sometimes i put the radio operator in front of me he did not like to walk in front of me actually <laughs> it was the guy in front of him did not like to have the radio operator walk in front but we just changed it up a little bit but uh, i always walked at the front my platoon sergeant always walked at the back never changed that up i was the leader I was in front, but yeah, you could, it was almost like putting a target, you know, that was the hazardous situation of being an officer. Now there was no patches. There were no patches and no rank insignia. Uh, the only way you knew I was an officer was on my helmet uh, band that went across my, my camouflage helmet uh, liner. It said LT Bartlett, but we didn't salute. We didn't call each other, sir. You know, they never addressed me as sir. My name was one six, and that's how I was referred to. And everybody either had a nickname or a number. I called my squad leaders by their number. I called my platoon leader, platoon sergeant by my by his number, one five. And that was all kind of a you know try and protect the organization of your small group because you're like if I get shot first, like now that need to draw you know leadership from somewhere deep inside, like that's passed to somebody else or scattered entirely. Well, that's part of it. The other part of it is I, I never really wanted to get too close to my men. I mean, I did get close to my platoon sergeant, my radio operator, my medic, uh, but not my men, because there were times when I had to tell them to do, to do things that would really put them in harm's way. So that was I didn't want to have a, anything get in the way of that kind of a decision. And then you said you were there for a year, like that was the standard deployment for everyone correct one year tour of duty officers served six to seven months in the field then rotated to a staff job and was there a lot of change 
you know, during that year of war. Um, within the platoon? Just in general, like the, the way that, you know, either the war was fought or, you know, the resources at hand or, you know, the, the people around you, whatever it might be. Not, not really. I mean, um, the standard daily activity was to move from point A to point B and set up a night defensive perimeter, NDP. And that move might be five kilometers, might be 10 kilometers. It would depend upon the terrain where you were. Uh, every once in a while, we would stay in a night defensive position for one or two days, depending upon the, again, depending upon the terrain. If it was really slow going and we would, we would set up at the top of a hill or top of a mountain and stay there for a day or two, but we would send out patrols every day. So you were, you were humping every day. We would stay out for four to six weeks at a time. And during that time, you would not change clothes. So you got to be pretty ripe. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't shave. Water was at a premium. So you got pretty dirty. I mean, there was enough water to drink and brush your teeth. That was about it. And we carried um, about two gallons of water. And you would sometimes if it was so hot, you go through that water by one o'clock in the afternoon. And I'd be very cautious about heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And then after four to six weeks, they'd bring you in to pull base camp uh, perimeter um, security around a battalion-sized base camp. Now, that would be about 600 men. And they would have bunkers around this base camp, uh, well-fortified. And you got a chance to have some hot food, a shower, uh, clean clothes, and uh, sleep during the day and pull security at night. So that that was pretty much the routine that I followed for, with a few exceptions, for uh, seven months. Well, and it seems like that time at base is definitely a bit more pleasant than the rest of it, where you're like, it oh, is. look, hot food yeah. and showers. <laughs> well, and sleep and sleep because you didn't have all those ambushes and and. You, you know, he felt a, 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 in a in a concrete bunker or a bunker that was uh, covered with um, sandbags. You, you felt a whole lot more secure uh, pulling perimeter security. And uh, you got got some sleep during the day, could write letters, and the showers were exceptional. Yeah. Well, and that's a stark contrast to, like you said, being out in the field. You know, there's the risk of heat stroke at all times. You're no matter how much water you're taking in, you're sweating it back out. And then when it rains and it gets cold, I imagine it gets extremely cold. Not really. I mean, there were some, some monsoon times when we could actually um, take a shower in the rain. As long as you washed off before the rain stopped, the rains would be intense uh, and almost like a shower. And um, we weren't allowed to drink the water in streams uh, because of Agent Orange poisoning, but but we would soak um, towels and rags in water and and at least douse ourselves with uh, with water. But um, it it never, to best of my knowledge, never got very cold. I never experienced any cold. I mean, a few times we carried a poncho and a poncho liner, and there were occasions in the morning where you'd wrap up in the poncho liner a little bit because it was chilly but never cold, never cold. Gotcha. I was just thinking about the sensation of like being drenched, 
like entirely to your oh, yeah. core and then being like, oh, that yeah. is the time where I am the most cold in this world is yeah. when I am completely soaked. And and those were very dangerous times because you couldn't hear anything, you know, with the con and you'd be wearing a poncho, which is which is plastic and the rain would be hitting the plastic and making noise. So th that's that was a very dangerous time as well. Any kind of a rainstorm at night. The enemy loved that. Uh, enemy were the better night fighters than Americans. Yeah. Americans would would hole up, dig foxholes and um, try and stay awake during the night. The enemy just was a, a masters of infiltration. Well, and especially, you know, there's a, a bit of a home field advantage. Like if you've grown up in this terrain, it's a lot different than if you grew up in Nebraska, right? Like those are very different life experiences and you're well, well prepared for one of them, depending yep. on where you grew up. That's, but, that's true. But um, in, and I don't know exactly when it is, you might have to lighten me on this, you know, at some point public opinion kind of turned on the war in Vietnam pretty stiffly to the point that it's become like, you know, a moment in history where like, oh, and then all public opinion kind of turned against the war in Vietnam. Could you, were you overseas when that happened? Yes. That was um, January, February, and March of 1968, right after the Tet Offensive. And prior to that time, Westmoreland and uh, Johnson had both said, we're winning the war. Uh, we're going to be successful. We're going to, we're going to, uh, train the South Vietnamese army to take over, uh, but uh, everything's going great. We need more troops, but everything's everything's working out really, really well. And then the Tet Offensive occurred, and we lost a couple of thousand soldiers. And uh, America suddenly woke up and found out, especially when you found 2,000 so, uh, survivor assistance officers calling on families to inform them that their son had had been killed uh, all at once all within a short period of time and the um, american uh, news media uh, did a 180 degree turn the voice of america walter cronkite uh, announced on national television that he had changed his opinion and the most we could hope for was a stalemate that we would not win this war and um, then the news media started to run on a daily basis the names and photographs. I guess they got them out of high school yearbooks, whatever, of all the men who had been killed that day, uh, day after day after day. A little bit like the same sort of uh, blitz that we get on a daily basis today with the political situation that's going on in the United States. And, and you know, it's one thing to... Uh, to listen to uh, the day's news, which is, as we know, filled with uh, the political environment. But it's a whole nother thing to have the daily news at the end of the news run a, a, a listing of all the soldiers who had been killed in Vietnam that day, day after day after day. And so American opinion woke up. Americans woke up and said, this is wrong. And protests on campuses uh, escalated, protests in the street escalated, uh, and, and the entire American political opinion about the war, why we were there, what we were doing, uh, did a 180-degree turn.
Yeah. Now, none of that was aware. We were not, we were not aware of any of that in Vietnam. There was no, no news in Vietnam. We, we didn't get any news. I mean, every once in a while, somebody would send a clipping home from the States, but we didn't have any newspapers. We didn't have any television. We were on the boonies. So we had no idea that, for the most part, we had no idea that any of this was going on until we received like a new soldier coming into the unit who would have stories. But that was just one person yeah. or two people, whatever. Well, that's kind of what I was wondering was like, could you feel that or was it so removed that like you weren't a part of the world, you know, as you called it, you're like, we're in a different place. We have no idea what's going on. We're just, we are here doing the day to day and following orders. That's right. We will do so until we go home. And hopefully when we go home, it's not the the homecoming. Yeah. Yeah. And how long after that did you come back? Because that was right around the start of your tour, right? I, I started May the 9th, 1968. And an officer, you were supposed to serve one year in Vietnam. And um, I had a staff job and I uh, uh, convinced my boss because I didn't, an officer fills out a form called a dream sheet and you put down where you would like to be assigned for your next tour of duty. Now I was a regular army officer, so I wasn't coming back to get out of the service. I was going on to my next duty station. And I put down that I'd like to be assigned to the West coast. Now that meant Fort Lewis, Washington or Fort Ord, California. And I didn't get orders and I didn't get orders. And so I talked my boss into letting me go to Saigon for three days, ostensibly to buy art supplies for our unit and to find out what my orders were. So after after two days of uh, R&R and little sightseeing in Saigon and eating steaks and drinking cold beer at the officers club, <clears throat> I um, found my way to MACV headquarters. That's Military Assistance Command Vietnam and was ushered into a gymnasium, an actual gymnasium with the basketball hoops pulled up. And on the floor of this gymnasium were these low wooden trays. The computer processing of those days was Fortran punch card processing. And there were 58,000 punch cards in these low trays, each one for a soldier in Vietnam. So we went down the line alphabetically, A to B to BA to BAR to Bartlett, John, Bartlett, Peter. Ah, here you are. You are going to Fort Wainwright in Seattle, Washington. And I said, wait a minute. I, I went to high school in Seattle, Washington. There, There is no Fort Wainwright in Seattle, Washington. Do you mean Fort Lewis? And they said, no. It says, a- oh, it says APO Seattle. That means Army Post Office Seattle. So we had to get a directory to look up where Fort Wainwright was located. And Fort Rain- Wainwright is located in Fairbanks, Alaska. So my next duty station was from 105 degrees in Vietnam to about, fortunately, I went in the summertime. So it was about 65, 60 to 65 degrees. So that was a big shock. <clears throat> but um, I, I, I wrote to my parents and I said, listen, I can't tell you exactly when I'm coming home, but it'll be sometime between May the 7th and May the 11th. And when I get there, then I'll call you and you can come pick me up. Well, my father um, was a, after World War II, uh, he was an engineer and they were going to, he had been promoted at that point up to the rank of uh, 
major and they said we're going to drop you down to first lieutenant because we don't need after world war ii we don't need uh, these uh, these uh, high ranking office higher ranking officers and the air force said well listen we need engineers and my father was uh, a concrete specialist he said we need somebody to go around inspect all these nato airfields and if you come with us we'll make you a lieutenant colonel so he became an air force officer and so he, he, he was at that point in time, he had uh, become a full colonel. He'd retired, but he had some pull in the Air Force. And he was able at Fort uh, Travis Air Force Base in, in California to find out a little bit about the flights coming in from Vietnam. And, and my parents literally met every flight coming back from Vietnam from May the 7th until I returned on May the 9th. Every flight. Well, they figured out not to meet the Marine flights because I wouldn't be on that one. But they met every Army flight coming in from Vietnam from May the 7th until I returned on May the 9th. And interestingly, my my wife was born on May the 9th. My youngest son was born on May the 9th. And I have tried to play 5-9 in every possible conceivable combinations, and I've never won anything. (laughs) That's too bad. And you're like, you know, when you, when you got your relocation order to Alaska, you had to be like, look, I said West Coast, but this I, they is laughed stretch. at me. <laughs> they, when we went to the directory, there were a couple other officers there. They were just hilarious that I was going to uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. I was not so happy, but it turned out to actually be a pretty good assignment. Okay. So what were those first, you know, obviously you met your parents at the airport, which is, you know, an incredible experience when you've been separated from the world as you know it for so long. What were those first few, you know, days, weeks like as you came back to more normalcy? So um, most of the men who got off that plane and, or were, were arriving back in Vietnam uh, went through processing, were put on buses and, and taken to Oakland Army Terminal. And then given pay, I mean, these are non, non-commissioned officers and, and enlisted men. Uh, officers had orders, so they knew where they were to go. And most of them were just released. Uh, some of, This is the, the time when so many soldiers were spit upon. And I mean, they would go into San Francisco and uh, you, you could tell they were military because they had short haircuts. They, they threw away their uniforms. They threw away their uniforms, didn't want to be recognized. It was an awful period of time for so many of those soldiers. But uh, when I when my flight landed in Travis Air Force Base, it was 11 o'clock at night, and, and I looked out the window of the airplane, and I saw two people standing on the other side of the fence. And I said, those are my parents. And we were all dressed the same. So I got within about two feet of my mother before she finally recognized me. <laughs> and I kissed her through the fence. I kissed her through the fence. But um, I was released right then and there and um, spent the night in the bachelor officer's quarters on at Travis Air Force Base. And my parents lived down in Monterey. <clears throat> so we drove down the highway and I spent about two weeks at home getting my car ready to go to uh, Alaska because you had to do all kinds of special things to prepare your car for the cold winter and buying uniforms, getting uniforms and um so uh, I didn't have any interaction with the public, and and um, I was still in the army. I when I got to Alaska, I was in a, a close knit military environment. Um, lived on a, 
in a bachelor officer's quarters interacting with other military people. So I did not have any contact with the American public. Do you think that kind of having that close community that you get, you know, when everyone around you is kind of in the same boat where you're like, oh, everyone here is either, you know, served in the same place I was or is going to, you know, and they they know the same structure that you know. Do you think that helped in some, kind of to some to... extent? I, I had hoped that there would be some uh, opportunity to communicate. Um, and, and I was the first. But by the way, I got promoted to captain on the day I arrived. It was my date to be promoted was June the 6th. And I arrived there in late May. And I met the brigade commander who was a full colonel. And he said, well, we're going to send you on down to the battalion as a captain. You're, you're due to promote it next month anyway. And they, they brought the uh, one. There was one captain in the brigade. I mean, all of the officers were in Vietnam. I was the first officer to come back into that unit from Vietnam. Several more followed me, but um, they they had him take the bars off his uniform and pinned them on me. I got here. I was 24 years old and I was instantly promoted to captain and I was made put in charge of a headquarters and headquarters company, $25 million worth of uh, material and equipment. It was a, a mechanized unit, meaning tank uh, track vehicles ambulances two and a half ton trucks i knew nothing about vehicles nothing about motor pool and and these were all world war ii vehicles so none of them ran they were all everything was redlined and and we couldn't get parts because the priority for parts was to vietnam so we would spend all our time just trying to get these vehicles to run we would go on a maneuver and within the first five months, five miles, we'd lose 50% of our vehicles, overheating. So that was quite uh, quite an experience for a brand new captain. And I must admit, I probably didn't perform very well. Uh, just lack of knowledge, lack of experience, uh, and uh, trying to do the best I could. That was not my forte. My forte was administrative as, a, as the S1. Yeah. You're like, boy, I'm sure glad we didn't need these vehicles because they don't yeah. run. <laughs> Well, and finally, that somebody got smart and they, they packed them all up onto a railhead and shipped them down to uh, the National Guard, got rid of all the vehicles, and we converted to light infantry, snows and, and skis. Everybody had to learn how to snowshoe and to, to uh, do cross-country skiing. Uh, so that was a little more effective of uh, unit and training. But uh, it was a brigade. You know, brigade was about 2,000 men. We were the first line of defense in the event the Russians came across the Bering Strait. It was it was ridiculous. You know, we could never have stopped an uh, an enemy infiltration. We fire one shot and run like hell. That would be the that that would be what we could do. <laughs> Better than nothing, I suppose, right? Yeah. Well, they had to have they had to have some sort of a security force there. I mean, most of the time was spent putting out forest fires. So then, how long after, you know, after you got to Alaska? I assume you did you know, your some term of service there, how long before you returned from the military to, you know, civilian life? So again, I was a regular army officer. I spent two years in Alaska and then I received orders transferring me to the career course back to Fort Benning, Georgia, the infantry co- career course. And um, so I made my way to the office of personnel operations. I decided I'd check in to see 
what the army had planned for me. And uh, I met with this major in the Office of Personnel Operations, and he was my advisor. And I thought it was very strange because he was an armor officer and I was an infantry officer. And I had been in combat and he had not. And um, he said to me, oh, Captain Bartlett, we, we ha- you are in the top 5% of your class. We're going to send you to the career course at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, then we're going to send you to the Monterey Language Institute, teach you how to speak Vietnamese, and send you back to Vietnam for your second tour as a Vietnamese unit advisor. And I said, uh, that's not exactly what I had in mind. And I told him what I wanted to do was go to Germany and be a military attache. And he said, okay, well, we can talk about that when you come back from your second tour in Vietnam. And I said, well, that's not what I want to do. I've got two Purple Hearts, and there's one job that's worse than being an infantry platoon leader, and that's being a Vietnamese unit advisor. They have a lower life expectancy even than a platoon leader. And he said, well, this is what we have you programmed for. I said, well, unprogram me because I want out. And he said, well, you know, look, you've you've accepted orders transferring you from Alaska to Georgia. Therefore, you are obligated for an additional year of service right now. And if you choose not to go to the career course, then we will send you back to Vietnam right now. Take the weekend and think it over. So I did. I I called my father. I talked to him. I just said, I'm not going to be programmed. This is not, not, don't want to go back to Vietnam. I don't want to be a Vietnamese unit advisor. So I came back and I said to this major, okay, send me back to Vietnam right now, but I want my resignation on file for 365 days from today's date. And I had 30 days of leave coming that would shorten my tour by a month. Uh, I would get another 30 days of vacation. So that would shorten it another month. I figured I could get away with eight months in Vietnam, or uh, 10 months in Vietnam. And then so this major goes and huddles with another two majors, and then he comes back and he says, well, let's not be hasty. Here the Army has spent all this money to move you and your family from Alaska to Georgia. Well, I knew right then and there he hadn't even looked at my records because I was a bachelor, and everything I owned fit in my car. So for the first time in my life, I was smart, and I kept my mouth shut. And he said, we're going to go ahead and send you on down to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. They'll make you an instructor or they'll find a job for you. And I said, "Okay, that sounds good. And uh, so I ended up back at Fort Benning for the last two years, uh, for two years. And I I was with the uh, leadership department of the infantry school, which which was like a management department of a of a college. And uh, that was a really good assignment. And I got I got placed on a. Uh, a group of officers uh, responsible for developing a course of instruction that was implemented army-wide and um, preparing a book of readings and lesson plans, overhead transparencies. This was before PowerPoint. And um, it was a very good assignment and actually sort of started me toward my civilian career, which was in publishing. Nice. Yeah, you're like, I would like to uh, refuse this death sentence, please. Yes. So... You know, after after you got out, did you feel, you know, like you fit in with, you know, every day, every every other person that you saw, you know, walking in and out of the grocery store? Did you feel like, oh, we're the same kind of people? 
So I, I actually started interviewing for a civilian job while I was still in the Army and ended up uh, accepting a position with Prentice Hall Publishing Company as a, a textbook sales representative. And um, was uh, my territory was in Southern California. Uh, I actually called them my own college. And my job was to call on college professors and tell them about all these wonderful textbooks that we had. And it, it was it was a tough transition because I was coming out of a, you know, highly organized uh, military organization where everything was done by the book, lots of rules, and uh, living in a, a very uh, free society. Uh, but doing my job and, it, you know, it was, I, I enjoyed it very, very much. I was good at it. Um, got promoted and ultimately came back uh, to the East Coast, which is where all the publishing was. And it stayed pretty much in, in publishing, publishing-related positions uh, for my civilian career. There you go. And now you have your own book out as well. Yes. So for a very long time, I was uh, on the marketing end and sales end and thought I knew a lot about uh, books, selling books, and I had worked in textbooks and trade books and uh, medical books and trade ju- and journals, selling and marketing. And, and I thought I knew a lot about book sales and book publishing. And I did. But what was missing was what it was like to be an author. And uh, that for the last year, my book was published uh, this year. For the last year, it has been a real eye opener and learning experience from and I had a wonderful publisher, very, very pleased uh, with my publisher and the production of my book. Um, my my book was published by Casemate Publishers, which is really a, a military book publisher. And I was very happy with the cover design. I was very happy with my publisher, very happy with the interior design. And um, they were demanding that the book be just as uh, clean and as accurate. I went through four uh, revisions and I was very, very fortunate to have a wonderful proofreader who was a college classmate of mine. And she uh, she found every misplaced comma, every mispe- misspelled word. And she asked a whole bunch of WTF questions. Uh, and, and I figured if she didn't understand what I was talking about, I needed to rewrite that section. And I sent the manuscript out to a couple of uh, a num- number of friends and the military friends all said, oh, this is wonderful. Publish it. But uh, two people that I knew, one a classmate and one uh, what was called a book shepherd. That's someone who helps an author shepherd their book through the production process. said, well, I guess you just want to sell this book to military people, right? You, you don't want to sell this to the general public. And I said, no, I, I, want, to send, I want to sell it to the general public. I want it accessible. And they said, well, you better do something about all this military jargon and you better put some of your personal feelings in because right now it's just it's just a straight memoir. So that caused me to rewrite the entire book. And I remembered that my mother had saved every letter that I wrote home from Vietnam and she left them in the original envelope. So they were all date stamped. So I put these more than 100 letters in chronological order, and I reread every letter. And then I reached in and I grabbed snippets from the letters, and I put them into appropriate chapters. So you could read what I wrote in the event, how I described the event, and then you could read what I wrote home. And they weren't always quite the same story. 
there's a little bit of a juxtaposition there. But uh, yeah, as I said, it took me the better part of 10 years to write it and another two years to rewrite it and then a year to produce, get it produced by the publisher. But I'm, I'm very, very pleased with the production job, with the cover. It was my, my photo. The, the photo of the book and that photograph is the platoon leader's view of a helicopter combat assault. So that was the view that I saw more than 50 times over the over the pilot's shoulder as we were making a helicopter combat assault, except when uh, I, my platoon's turn was to lead the assault. And then I was in the first helicopter, and that was a little different view. Well, and, and this book, number one, has a beautiful layout. The way that things are just like, you know, you interspersed your letters into it. And, you know, there's different clippings from news pieces or pamphlets or, you know, the pictures that were found that just like get get dropped in throughout this book. It's wonderful. And then reading it, you know, it's in very small pieces so that you're like, I was just reading the uh, the FNG chapter, which when people read it, will know what they're talking about. But uh, I was just reading through that and it's like, you know, the whole the whole section is pretty short and it stands apart from everything else. So if you put this book down and then just pick it up, you can start every new chapter and not feel like you need to reread anything. You're just like next chapter. Let's go. In fact, I could not remember the chronology. So as I said earlier, the, each chapter kind of stands alone. And, and there are a number of chapters that are that are horrific. And then there's some. I tried to mix in some funny things too, and and as I mentioned, uh, there were there were several things that happened to me that were really quite unusual and and did not happen to other veterans, and so I thought those stories were kind of worthy of telling. Yeah, yeah, that chapter alone has a number of pretty good stories where it's, uh, you know, the guy leaving his gun loaded and absent absentmindedly kind of uh, ends up blowing a couple of his toes off, and a guy that. Um, for lack of better words, explodes the latrines. <laughs> so it's like this book is is chock full of, of really good detailed stories, and I really appreciated it. And I have I have appreciated your time here. I kind of wanted to get you know as we as we close this out, there is a section at the start of your book that I thought was very powerful, and you're talking about you know when speaking to a Vietnam vet, there is a better phrase than "thank you for your service." And that was welcome home. You know, their uh, Vietnam veterans are starting to walk in the boots of our World War II and Korean veterans. World War II vets are all 100, 90, 99, 100, 101. Korean, you know, they're in their 90s. And so Vietnam veterans are the veterans that you encounter today. They're the ones you see marching. They're the ones who are participating in VFWs and American legions. And um, there's a, there's absolutely nothing wrong with acknowledging a veteran service with the words, thank you for your service. But because of the reaction of the American public to Vietnam veterans upon return, and because Vietnam is acknowledged as the first American war that we lost, and Vietnam veterans often are held responsible for that loss psychologically they never got the welcome upon return that world war ii vets did and some korean vets did there were no parades there was there was no acknowledgement and and because of the way they were treated most vietnam vets just 
packed it all in, didn't talk about it. Uh, in fact, when my book was published, I've had so many friends come up to me and or write me and say, had no idea you were a veteran, had no idea you were in Vietnam because you just didn't talk about it. My family, I didn't even talk about it to my family. So the words welcome home are special to Vietnam veterans. And if you if you recognize a Vietnam vet, they're the ones that <laughs> that say Vietnam veteran on their hat. Um, if you say those words, welcome home, and th those words can be said to any veteran. But if you say them to a Vietnam veteran, it, it gives a special meaning to your to your greeting, to your acknowledgement of of the sacrifice that that we made. And um, it, it can be a real game changer uh, for those veterans to receive that kind of acknowledgement. Absolutely. Well, Robin Bartlett, thank you again for being here. Tell everybody one more time where they can find your book and more from you sure. if they're looking for it. So um, if they come to my website, which is www.robinbartlettauthor.com. And by the way, there's a female author by the female actress by the name of Robin Bartlett. Don't get confused. www.robinbartlettauthor.com. Uh, you can get my book at a discount, autographed and free shipping. And plus, there's a wealth of information on my website. Uh, you can spend hours there. I've got a lot of stuff, videos photographs and a lot of information so it's it's a fascinating website worked very hard on it yes absolutely um thank you again for being on here if you anyone out there goes and picks up this book wherever you're picking it up if there was an option to leave a review somewhere if you're buying this you know from amazon or you're picking it up you know on an online book retailer leave a good review for it i know i harp on this a lot but it is a very big deal for authors like robin thank you I know war topics aren't the cheeriest, but it's an important reminder to reach out to the people in your life who might otherwise have a very hard time feeling like they can reach out for help. We're halfway through the last month, so here are the updated rankings. Number one, the United States, still led by New York, Oregon, and South Carolina. Number two, Germany, losing ground but still holding the spot. Number three, Canada, rocketing up the chart, thanks to all of the wonderful listeners in Ontario. Number four, the United Kingdom, led by England. And number five, Australia, with New South Wales responsible for them staying on this list at all. That's it for this week. Have a great week, a great weekend. I'll see you all back here for the next episode, just before Christmas. Wow. Until that next episode, please do all those things that help the show grow, like rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing. Remember, you can reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social medias if you want to reach me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb. <laughs>